and welcome back to Macabre for Mortals. I have been wrestling with restarting my podcast again, as I was very torn in the impact of reporting on true crime on victims and the relatives of victims, and also letting the public know the dangers of people who are out there in the world. I did decide after lots of internal turmoil that I will continue, but I'll try to be respectful to the families as much as possible, and also try to vary my content a bit more. I ended up on the last series feeling a bit dispassionate about what I was reporting and I didn't feel it was genuine in my conversation. In future, I will be releasing one episode every two weeks and I'll alternate between true crime and other subjects in order that there will be some content that is appropriate for everyone. I will also be asking some of my friends and professionals to be part of my podcast when I feel that it is subjects that are interested in, have specific knowledge that I can't provide detailed information on, or just to give their outside intake. I think this will break up the content and give a more relaxed fit in some of the episodes. Today, because I've decided to release this at the end of January, I will be covering two short topics, and then my full-length episodes will be starting again from February. So today, I will be covering the true crime case of Alexander Pierce and the story of the Winchester House. These are both topics that shocked and intrigued me. And the first is a telling about the first reported cannibal in Australia's white history. And the second is about a haunting of the gun maker's widow. Have you heard anything about that? Nope, not a thing. Like many British men during the 17 and 1800s, if you're convicted of a specific crime, then you would have been deported to Australia. As I mentioned in episode two, one of my relatives in the past was deported to Australia for manslaughter. Alexander Pierce was an Irish convict who was deported to the island of Van Diemen's Land. Do you know what Van Diemen's Land is? I believe that is Tasmania. Yes, now modern day Tasmania. And he was sent there for seven years because he had been found guilty of theft. Pierce was born in County Morgaron in Ireland. And when he became of working age, he was employed as a farm hands labourer. In the early 1800s, it was a hard time for working class to be able to keep their heads above water. They would often not be able to put food on their tables for their families. And these families were large since birth control was not something something that was commonly used and infant death was a common occurrence in the lower and higher classes. This usually led to people committing theft in order to make these ends meet. This is actually something that my family member was trying to do as he was poaching rabbits from the local Earl's land when the groundskeeper found him and his accomplices. What do you think Pierce was convicted of? Think of Ireland, 1800s. Stealing potatoes? No. So Pierce was convicted of theft in Armagh Island for stealing six pairs of shoes. Close enough. For this offence, he was deported for seven years hard labour. However, Pierce did not keep his nose clean while serving his time in Van Diemen's Land. He continued his petty crimes and this resulted in the authorities to keep extending his sentence. 
And don't get me wrong, Van Diemen's was not a walk in the park, especially since Pierce was a considered a repeat offender and incarcerated in Port Arthur. You visited Port Arthur? Yes, I have, yeah. Yeah. What was it like there? Kind of eerie to think that the accommodations and stuff back in that time and the temperature ranges and the climate they have to face in wooden shacks. Hmm. So Port Arthur has actually become famous for another awful crime. Yeah, and yeah. mass shooting. Yeah, which was responsible for the overhaul of Australia's gun laws. Yeah. But Port Arthur, in the time of the convicts, it was slightly different. They were not given whippings or any other physical punishment. Did you know that? No. Yeah, as this was seen to harden the criminals. But what they were subjected to, I see as far worse. So food was used as a form of reward and punishment. If you were seen as a good prisoner, then you'd be given large amounts of food and luxury items such as tea or sugar. But if you were not behaving, then you were given the bare minimum, just bread and water. And perhaps this is a bit of foreshadowing to Pierce's criminal mind. Port Arthur was also considered a silent prison. Do you know what that could mean? No. So prisoners were forced to wear a hood for large parts of the day in order to reflect on the behaviour and actions. However, the long-term use of this caused prisoners to have light and sound deprivation, which inevitably created mental illnesses in the convicts. Alexander Pierce wasn't a stupid man. He was deceptive and intuitive. And it was reported in the Hobart Gazette on the 18th of May, 1822, that he had escaped Port Arthur. And a reward of 10 British pounds was up for anyone who assisted in the arrest. So how much do you think 10 British pounds would be today? Maybe a couple of thousand? Yeah, so about 1,500 Australian dollars. But it's actually quite hard to escape from Port Arthur. Yeah. Where the landmass is, they deliberately chose that location because of the way the, the tip or the, it's not really a peninsula, but there's a bottleneck, a landmass bottleneck, where they had it guarded mm-hmm. kilometres away from the campsites. Yeah. So the only way to escape was to get through that choke point, yeah. basically. So no one was really, they didn't have fences around the place, basically. It was just yeah. all open bushland. Mm-hmm. And they logged it and, and basically became self-efficient where they were. I'm getting to that. So, yeah. I was jumping the gun here. <laughs> He was eventually caught and was charged for absconding and foraging an order, which is forging money, which was a much more serious crime than the ones he was actually originally convicted of. For this, he was given transportation again to the new and second penal establishment of Sarah Island in Macquarie Harbour. Is that towards Sydney? No, it's still in Tasmania. Okay. So Sarah Island Penitentiary was only in operation for 11 years, but it was considered the hardest penal settlement in the Australian colonies. The reason this island was selected for the penitentiary was because it was situated on 20 acres of land, surrounded by rivers, mountains, and hard bush wilderness. And the most hardened criminals and offenders who escaped other penitentiaries were sent here because of the unfavorable conditions of the island. So the only access was seaward, and this was through a treacherous bit of water called Hell's Gate. 
and strong tidal currents killed many convicts before they ever reached Sarah Island, which is the reason why there are actually still so many wrecks of ships around that area. Here, Pierce would have spent most of his days neck deep in water, cutting down trees and timber to raft down the river, what you said, it becomes self-sufficient, as this was once one of the biggest shipping building islands in the colony. Lashings were common in this penitentiary and convicts would often do, die due to the severity of these lashings. However, once in a while, a doctor could intervene to save their life but the lashings would continue when it was considered the person had recovered sufficiently. Because of the island's isolation and because they could not produce their own food source, malnutrition was common as well as scurvy. It was known that a prisoner called Trenum reportedly stabbed another prisoner so he could be executed rather than be deported to Sarah Island. Despite this, on September 20th, 1822, Pierce and seven other convicts attempted an escape from the island. Yeah, another escape. Alexander Dalton, Thomas Bodum, William Kennelly, Matthew Travers, Edward Brown and Robert Greenhill and John Mather escaped while working on the eastern side of the harbour. And Greenhill was appointed the leader by the men as he was the one who had the only weapon, an axe. But Greenhill and Travers were on the island for stealing a valuable schooner from a wealthy businessman, which meant they had an alliance from the start. However, after 15 days of being on the run and no available food, the men decided to draw lots to see who they would sacrifice. It is believed that Bowdoin was the one who drew the short straw and Greenhill took no time in bringing down the axe to kill him. Due to his quick brutality, three of the men, reportedly Brown, Kennelly, and Dalton, decamped away from this party. They were hungry, but the quickness to turn to cannibalism scared them, and they wanted no part of this. However, Dalton shortly succumbed to exhaustion soon after they separated, and he actually died. So Pierce was now left with Greenhill and Travers and Mother. And seeing that Greenhill and Travers were already a tight duo, he decided to side with them. And soon after, it was inevitable that Mother was subject to the same sacrifice and consumption. It would seem to Pierce that his time was short as the partnership between his other two escapees was strong. However, in a stroke of luck, Travers was actually bitten by a snake on the foot. And Greenhill insisted that they carried him for five days but soon he succumbed to the venom and then they ate him. Yeah. With only two of them left and starving, it was a game of cat and mouse and they both had to sleep, but Greenhill was the one in possession of the axe. In the end, it was Pierce who was the one who managed to outlive Greenhill. Pierce stayed awake longer and stole the axe and ended the life of his last accomplice. However, with the last of his party consumed and no more readily available victims, Pierce had to find more food sources somewhere. And he actually stumbled onto an Aboriginal settlement and stole food from here to keep him going until he ended up on a sheep paddock. He had finally reached civilization. And in another stroke of luck for Pierce, 
the farmer whose sheep paddock he'd ended up on was friendly and he actually knew him from back in Ireland. So he immediately employed him to be part of his sheep stealing ring. So the sheep stealing did eventually lead to his recapture along with two other notorious butch rangers, William Davis and Ralph Churnton. But Pierce managed to escape the noose while the others two did not. So how many days do you think he was on the run for? About six months. So in total, he'd managed to be on the run for 113 days, so about four and a half months. And he was sent back to Hobart to continue his sentence. Pierce did make a confession to Reverend Knotwood about his cannibalism while he was locked up. Knotwood was the magistrate and the chaplain, but they didn't believe Pierce's story and the authorities thought the other men were still on the run as bush rangers. So they didn't actually believe that he ate them. He just thought that they were covering for him. But within a year, Pierce had returned to his absconding ways and escaped prison again. So he escaped Port Arthur again, but with another inmate, Thomas Cox. This time, this time, his time away from the prison was not as long as the time before, as Pierce was recaptured within 10 days. However, Thomas Cox was nowhere to be found. And it wasn't until they searched Pierce the convict had a small bag with a few supplies in it, but his pockets, they found what remained of Thomas Cox. His fingers. Fingers? Yeah. Not surprisingly, this time, his story of cannibalism was believed. It is reported that at the time, people did not think Pierce looked like a cannibal. Due to the prejudice of the time, they believed that only Aboriginal people or people of colour would be the ones to commit this crime. But now we have much more knowledge. Modern day academics are aware that just because you look a certain way doesn't mean that you will behave stereotypically. Pierce only stood about five foot three inches, which was below the average height at the time. And even the Hobart Gazette published that he did not look like the type of man that banqueted on human flesh as he was small and wiry. So he was about the same height as me. So not very big at all. Pierce admitted that he had killed Thomas Cox when they reached Kings River and discovered that Cox could not swim and then therefore would become a burden to his escape. Pierce also gave two more statements about his previous escape and cannibalism, which contradicted each other and his first confession to Knotwood. He stated that Dalton was the first man to be killed, not Bowden, since he was the only survivor out of the four men left after Kenley Brown and Dalton decamped. This story can't be verified though, and Pierce was the first case to be tried of cannibalism in Tasmania, and he was eventually hung at Hobart Town Jail on the 19th of July, 1824. I wonder what his last meal request was. Hmm. Do you think they have one then? No. There have been many movies and programs to come out of Alexander Pierce on being the feature length film of Van Diemen's Land in 2009. You seen that movie? Um, I think I might have. It's been a while. But most notable in Australian history is the ballad, a tale they won't believe, by wedding parties in a think, which is a song. Give it a Google. But it's a ballad about his life and how he ate people. Yeah. I don't even think about it. I don't know. 
What most true crime enthusiasts ask is what did the accused have for their last meal? Or what was their last words? While I don't know what Alexander Pierce's last meal was, his last words before the noose was tightened. No. His last words before the noose was tightened is reportedly to be, man's flesh is delicious. It tastes far better than fish or pork. So, how do you feel about that? I wonder what seasonings he had. The next story that we're going to cover is the Winchester House. So I'm going to let you take a look at it and how would you describe it? Yeah, it's the like I mentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, we're talking about saying Winchester as in like the gun manufacturing? Yes, we will get to that. Yeah. Jumping the gun. Uh -huh. Well, it looks like they've got a lot of money confined to that house. So to me, it feels like a mixture of mansions that you see in the rich and famous Los Angeles and the kooky and spooky Nevermore School in Wednesday Adams and the murder house from season one of American Horror Story. The architecture doesn't really know what year or period it should belong to, yet somehow it seems to melt together and inspire curiosity. Winchester is a name that most people would not associate with a piece of architecture, however. Winchester, to me, is a town in England with a history that reaches back to the Roman times. However, that's not what this is today. Not the supernatural brothers. No. The Winchester Rifle, which was given the nickname the Rifle that won the West, is a comprehensive term describing a series of leather-action repeating rifles, and it was manufactured by the Winchester Repeating Arms Company. The first Winchester rifle, the Winchester Model 1866, was originally chambered for the Rimfire .44 Henry, nicknamed the Yellow Boy, because of its receiver of bronze and brass alloy called gun metal. So that's where gun metal comes from. It was famous for its rugged construction and lever action repeating rifle mechanism that allowed the user to fire a number of shots before having to reload. So France actually purchased 6,000 of these Model 1866 rifles, along with 4.5 million of the Henry cartridges during the Franco-Prussian War. So 4.5 million yeah. cartridges. Yeah. In more modern times, Winchester brought back the model of the 1873, which was manufactured under a license from the Erlen Company in Japan. It joins the model of the 1892 and the 1894 as the third classic Winchester rifle model to be reintroduced. And they're both 20 or 24 inch barrels, either round or octagonal. So that's different. And it is identical to the design of the originals, but includes a trigger disconnect in safety, a sliding dust cover and a crescent shaped butt plate, but with two notable exceptions. An additional safety mechanism firing pin block which prevents it from moving forward unless the trigger is pulled because you're not allowed to have sell a gun without that now 
was integrated and the cartridge carrier was changed to eject used castings away from the shooter. Hmm. So now the cartridges don't go back onto you. Sarah Winchester was born in 1839 in Connecticut, but not much was known of her early life as in this time, a woman's life only really started when she got married. Luckily for Sarah, she wed William Winchester when she was 23 years old. And William was the only son and heir to Oliver Winchester and the Winchester estate. Sarah experienced a lot of bad fortune in a short amount of time. Herself and William only had one child together, Annie, as it had been rumoured that they had many unsuccessful pregnancies and each loss chipped away a bit at Sarah's resilience. But the happiness of Annie was turned to grief as she was taken away from them just a month after her birth from Marasmus. So do you know what Marasmus is? No, I don't. So Marasmus is a Greek word for withering. Mostly it's a condition of children who are suffering from malnutrition. But for babies, it can be something pathological. And unfortunately, due to the time of the late 1800s, like medical practitioners were not as what they are now. And Annie unfortunately died. So 1881 was the year that Sarah suffered her biggest losses. Her mother, her father-in-law, and then finally her husband all succumbed to tuberculosis. But fortunately and unfortunately, Sarah inherited a lot of the fortune from Winchester. This was a fortune of $20 million in 1881. Gee. Now, I'm not sure I am. Thanks, Siri. Now it is $561.6 million. And she also had. You're welcome. And she also got a 50% stake in the Winchester Repeating Arms Company. So she got that money and a stake in the gun company as well. So never-ending money. Yes. So this made her the wealthiest woman in the world at the time. She was getting about $200,000 per day. But the money could not fill the void of people that she had lost. In her... So in 1888, she purchased 140 acres of land in Los Altos, California. And this was to become her ranch and her focus for the rest of her life. She was believed to be a spiritualist. And it is rumoured that before her move to Los Altos, she went to see a psychic who performed a seance to con contact all of her loved ones that she had lost. This meeting didn't have the soothing effect that she wished, as a psychic told her that when she moves to her new house, she will need to continually build for the entire of her life to escape the tormented souls that will follow her. So from 1866 till 1922, the construction never stopped on the ranch. And when Sarah eventually passed, there were 10,000 windows, 2,000 doors, 10 bathrooms, and six kitchens. And there are rooms that have multiple doors off them, staircases that go to nowhere, and fake doors that have solid walls behind them. One would think that the constant construction was a way of mapping Sarah's descent into madness. However, was this all a lie? 
What do you think? Just be silence. Just very indecisive. Mm, like you? Me? Never. The myth of Sarah Winchester begins in 1895, over a decade after Winchester bought a modest farmhouse in San Jose. Although legend would have you believe that Sarah was on the run from an army of ghosts, the reason for her move was for her family, not supernatural. After the death of her husband, Sarah decides to leave the East Coast to be with her family. Her brother-in-law was the president of Mills College, and two of her sisters already lived in the Bay Area. Some historians believe she initially bought the San Jose farmhouse with an eye for expansion. As the family's wealthiest member, she could afford to build a place to house them all. And after the loss she had experienced, could you blame her for wanting to keep her family close? From the start of construction in the manor, Sarah came up against the conventional architecture of the time. And since she had no traditional training, she employed and dismissed several architects during the many years. I am constantly having to make upheaval for some reason, Sarah wrote to her sister-in-law in 1898. For instance, my upper hall, which leads to the sleeping apartment, was rendered so unexpectedly dark by a little addition that after a number of people had missed their footing on the stairs, I decided that safety demanded something to be done. I wonder how many people were walking up that staircase since it's a sleeping chamber. A lot of the night parties. It is believed that far from an exercise of spiritualism, that a lot of the labyrinths of the mansion were down to her inexperience as an architect and the fact that she could tear this down and start over. And that was due to the amount of expendable income that she had available to her. Nowadays, we would consider Sarah to be an introvert but because she was reserved and preferred to her own company and the company of the fa her family, people in the elite classes turned to gossip, as it was at that time sort of essential for people who had money to party and court the wealthy around them. By 1895, the house was large enough to draw the speculating eyes of the community. The February 24th, 1895, 1895 issue of the San Francisco Chronicle ran an article that almost single-handedly laid the foundation for the Winchester Mystery House legend. The sound of the hammer is never hushed, it reported. The reason for it is in Mrs. Winchester's belief that when the house is entirely finished, she will die. The story was so popular it was picked up by newspapers around the state, but the narrative is dubious at best. For one, the hammers did stop, and often. In one letter to family, Sarah said that she suspended construction for the summer as it was too hot to work. I became rather worn and tired out and dismissed all the workmen to take such a rest as I might through the winter, she wrote. And some modern day historians speculate that one of the reasons that Sarah kept building was because of the economic climate at the time and by continuing construction, she was able to keep the locals employed. In her unusual way, it was an act of kindness. So Sarah sadly passed in September of 1922 of heart failure, and she was buried next to William and Annie, and finally back with her family. However, her story was not over. Her last will and testament is rumoured to have 13 parts, 
and was signed 13 times. But this was not the most amazing act of this document. She gave most of her wealth to charity and all that remained went to her niece. Her many real estate holdings, as she lived in a different mall and a few more modest homes in her final years, were auctioned off and that money was donated to more charities. But despite all of her good deeds during life and in death, they will always live in the shadow of the mystery of the Winchester house. Do you have any thoughts? Um, do you want to go and visit there? You can do a tour. A ghost tour? Stay yeah. yeah. No, thanks. So my references will be all in the show notes, but I do want to give a big reference to sfgate.com for the alternative article on Sarah Winchester, as it did give me a few references to some of the letters that she wrote, which wasn't anywhere else. Thank you for listening to another episode of Macarthur Morse. If you do have any questions or want to suggest any topics, then please send me an email to macarthurmortals at gmail.com. Next episode, we'll be covering Leather Apron. So I'd like to thank my guest for being with me today. And I hope you have a great week wherever in the world you are.